Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, happy Halloween. That's right. We have a special treat for you. We normally have a vault episode for you on Saturday. But since this Saturday is also Halloween itself, uh, we thought we would feature a two-parter from last year. Right. So this was parts one and two of our episode on uh, psychic photography, this belief some people have that you could project images from the brain onto photographs. And so we get into the ring. We talk about some real strange parapsychology research. Uh, we talk about vision. And uh, I remember this being a lot of fun. All right. Let's dive right in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's October, so we're continuing with our Halloween, spooky, ghostly kind of theme. And today we wanted to explore a somewhat ghostly topic that ties into neuroscience, to uh, stuff we've talked about recently on the Invention Podcast with the history of photography. But before we get into that, I wanted to start with a question to kind of orient us here. And that question is, what is it that makes somebody skilled at an art like realistic drawing or realistic sculpture. I should say, by the way, I am not skilled at this at all. I cannot draw realistically for the life of me. In fact, uh, when I try to draw pictures of people, it the <laughs> it's a source of great amusement to Rachel. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm the same way. I can, I can draw a pretty mean goblin, but um, I can't really draw a, a, a human. My, uh, my son, uh, who's seven, is already a better, uh, better uh, artist when it comes to depicting actual human beings than I am. But, but obviously, so a huge part of what's going on here is, is practice, right? You've got to learn techniques. But another part of this, I think, could just be thought of as some kind of motor power of translation. Like, how do you take an image represented in your brain, and it's in your brain either way, whether you're currently looking at it or calling up out of a memory or an imagination, uh, either way, the, the image is coming from your brain, and then it's being translated somehow through a series series of hand motions into a physical object in the world, whether that's a sculpture, painting, or drawing. Like, there's some kind of skill there that I think remains ineffable to us. It's mysterious. Sometimes it's even kind of spooky because we don't understand what's happening with that translation process. But what if there were no translation process? What if there were no way for clumsy arms and hands and uh, failures of technique to impede the physical manifestation of what you've got in your mind's eye? What if we could just project the objects of the mind's eye directly onto the physical world? Would such a thing be possible? And if so, would such a power be in a way terrifying, sort of godlike in the worst and most ancient sense? Ah, and here you're getting into the uh, uh, the, the Halloween uh, aspects of this topic. This is the reason that we have decided to approach this uh, during the month of October. Exactly, because this power does show up in horror fiction. One place that you might have encountered it is in the books or the movies. Uh, there have been several different series at this point, but The Ring, the story of The Ring, the, the, the scary ghost girl who can print media with her brain. She can psychically print images onto photographs or onto oh, the wall of a barn or onto a videotape. She can just make a videotape without filming it just straight out of her mind's eye. 
Of course, this is played up for horror in the film, and I, w- I sort of stand by taking it in that direction. I think if anybody actually had this power, it would be horrifying. <laughs> and it would be it would be a little irritating to everyone who's, who's put a lot of time and effort into honing their craft, right? Um, <laughs> so it's possible you're you're familiar with The Ring uh, via Gore Verbinski's 2002 remake, The Ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where I saw it for the first time. Me too. But you also may have uh, seen it uh, by watching the original Japanese horror film uh, directed by Hideo Nakata. Uh, this came out in 1998, and I, I, I severely hope that if you if you did see the original Japanese version back in the late 90s, you watched it on a, a crummy dubbed VHS tape. <laughs> Because that would right. be most appropriate. Right. Uh, because either way, if you haven't seen the movies or read the – see the uh, the original Japanese movie was also based on a book by, uh, by Koji Suzuki. But uh, in any case, the story is about a cursed videotape that is made by this ghost girl. She uses this psychic power of projecting her thoughts directly onto media to make a, a videotape that kills the people who watch it. Yeah. The cursed videotape containing disturbing – it's basically a disturbing, surrealistic art video. Mm-hmm. Uh, kills you in seven days. Uh, so there's kind of a uh, – what do you call it in, in medicinal terms? Uh, delayed reaction. Delayed effects. Delayed yeah. effects. <laughs> yeah. uh, it takes that long to work through your system. You know, Time to release. Sometimes <laughs> art is like that. It's time release. You, uh-huh. know, you go – you see it at the museum and you're like, I don't really know how, what, what I, how I feel about this or, or you know, how I think about my, this piece and how it relates to me. And then seven days later, uh, it kicks in and you die. Uh, with a weird look on your face. But – yeah, this is basically an update of a very old notion, right, of a haunted object or of haunted media, uh, only instead of a dark and magical book, instead of something like, uh, you know, the Necronomicon or, uh, you know, the Book of Sand mm-hmm. or any of these other uh, treatments, we have a dark and magical video recording and it unleashes a world of terror and death. It's an inherently compelling idea in horror, I think, actually. Some piece of media, whether it's a book or now uh, a movie, I think there there's some... Is there a Stephen King story with like a painting that kills you or something? Uh, there's the the Reaper's image. Oh, that's about a mirror. A, a yeah. mirror, and it's uh, one think, of one of King's best short stories. I highly recommend it. I agree. Maybe that is what I was thinking of. That is a fantastic story. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, the idea of like a a work of art or something that cannot be experienced without cursing or killing you. Yeah, that's scary. It's also fertile ground for any kind of metaphor that the artist wants to sow about. Uh, you know, about art itself and right. the way it affects and the viewer. Art, yeah. And art does have an effect on us. I mean, uh, in, in, there's an old episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, where Julie and I discussed Stendhal syndrome mm-hmm. and some of its related uh, alleged syndromes. You know, it deals with the reality that, yes, yeah, sometimes great works of art, uh, you know, with a, and, and great works of art with appropriate priming mm-hmm. uh, can overwhelm us, can have a physical reaction on us. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not unrealistic. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I want to say about that uh, Gore Verbinski remake of The Ring. Well, I don't inherently love the idea of just like American remakes of foreign films just to sort of Americanize it mm-hmm. uh, because it had only been like a few years since the original film had been made at that point. Right, it, and they seemed, Americanized the heck out of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but at the same time, one thing I will defend about it is it is a very um, visually imaginative film. Like it's got great creepy abstract imagery in it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Great, great visuals, great performances uh, and uh, wonderful special effects. Uh, th- that remake, I remember, really had an effect on me. It was the last time 
a horror film like made me sleep with the lights on. Yeah. Uh, so I, I look back fondly on it for that reason. However, I have to say certain aspects of the film stuck with me and others I kind of forgot about. Mm-hmm. Like some of you might be like, oh, yeah, I guess that girl did write video tapes with her mind. Uh-huh. Like that I kind of forgot about. I also kind of forgot that it had this – that it's essentially uh, adoption exploitation horror, uh, not the only oh, God, entry. Is it? Yeah, basically. Yeah, basically because the whole idea is they, the, there's this couple that adopts this child oh. and the child is troubled. And uh, I forgot that she was adopted. Yeah. yeah so, uh, you know, I, I have a very uh, queasy attitude towards uh, that kind of horror at this point in my life for sure. Yeah, totally. But, uh, but still, it, those are the things I tend to forget about it. I, uh-huh. I remember, uh, you know, those scenes with Samara um, climbing out of the television uh, with the creepy walk where they I think they filmed her backwards and then made it go forwards. I uh-huh. remember, uh, I think Hans Zimmer did the music and it's very effective horror music. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, on, t- and then on, t- yeah, on top of that, you have some great performances. Uh, did you ever see the sequel? I did. It, it'll spoil it all. It's I hilarious. I saw it in the theater even. Um, and uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, but, but no, it's a, it is a film that is still – both films are considered classics in their own way. And yeah. I think they, they earn that, that reputation just if nothing else by just scaring us so terribly and really connecting with our – relationship with media and mm. at that time it was it, it was dealing with the VHS and uh and, and and how we were connecting with with this kind of uh, you know physical media and i should say also you know getting into that idea of finding weird things finding weird oh, footage yeah. and at that point it was most of it was through like tape trading or i guess it was to a certain extent downloads but i definitely remember uh, you know ordering up like weird dubs of the japanese laser discs of say um, el topo or holy mountain uh-huh. you know and there was this weird you know like, you don't you have you're not really sure exactly how this got to you mm-hmm. you know what are the hands that dubbed it from this format to this format and then redubbed it here, and then finally it's in my hands. I think that is actually one of my favorite types of uh, uh, story forms for horror is the the creepy found piece of media. I can remember one one of my favorite horror short stories I've read in a long time was one by Laird Barron. Uh, I think it's called Mysterium Tremendum, mm-hmm. where the narrator of the story just finds this travel guide and I think some weird used bookstore or something, but it turns out to be a nefarious sort of magic travel guide that uh, leads to very dark places. See, I love that. Nowadays, though, and and maybe they do this, I think maybe they did this on one of the recent Ring movies. It's like, essentially, it's got to be on YouTube, which takes the punch out of it, you know, because it's like you have the dark media, but then the dark media is on an even more um, uh, deplorable uh, social media, you know, bummer format. But it also takes away the ironic distance that makes the horror fun because YouTube just will melt your brain and kill you. It (laughs) It doesn't need any, like, horror upgrades. The real actual YouTube is just waiting to destroy you at the moment. Yeah, though it is, I it is kind of comforting to think that that all the commentators at the bottom of the the Ring video then uh-huh. on YouTube died seven days later. <laughs> yeah. So, like the guy says, that WTF is this real? Yes, yeah. this is real. As long as we're just talking about the the Ring, though, um, the, the American remake, we should point out again that that cast is tremendous. Um, uh, talking about Samara, uh, her mom is played by Shannon Cochran, who played uh, who played Pam's mother on The Office, and then her father is played by Brian Cox, oh, the legendary Brian Cox. Brian Cox, one of my favorite actors of all time. He he kind of makes the movie. 
And then the, uh, the, the, the young uh, actor playing Samara herself. I don't know if we said Samara is the ghost girl. Yeah, the ghost the, girl. She's Samara in the American version, and she's uh, Sadako in the uh, Japanese version. Uh-huh. So the, the name changes. Uh, but anyway, in the, in the, in the remake, uh, DeVay Case, uh, Chase, I hope I'm saying her name right, uh, this actor played Samara. And she also voiced Lilo in Lilo in, in Stitch, uh-huh. the, Go, the yeah. Disney film about the, you know, the, uh, the alien visiting Hawaii. Going to her IMDb page is hilarious because I found out she also is the girl in the Sparkle Dance troupe in Donnie Darko. <laughs> and she's the voice of the main character in the, in the English dub of Spirited Away. Ah, yeah, the Miyazaki film. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay, so first of all, the idea that Samara can create a surrealistic film, that she can pour like all the, the nihilistic, misanthropic uh, visions in her head into a videotape and make it so potent that it can kill people, mm-hmm. uh, either just through the sheer power of the art or you know, probably through some sort of supernatural, um, you know, whatever. Uh, it, that's a really cool trick and one that I would, I would think could have been put to much more profitable use. Right. Um, like, why isn't there a sequel where, like, the U.S. military ends up acquiring Samara? Right. Like, that would be great because then she ends up killing all the, like, the evil MK Ultra good dudes. It basically writes itself. Right. But uh, Sort of a crossover with the ring and Stranger Things would have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, and, and to, to go a little deeper, though, I think— in in a way, this concept really really works though. Like you can think of any creative endeavor, especially filmmaking, as an attempt to bring that ideal image, that mental image in your head, into the world. And of course, for a number of reasons, we generally don't succeed in pulling that off. And part of the reason, of course, is that is that the idea in our mind is rarely as fully formed as we think it is. I think that's exactly right. I mean, an experience I definitely have when writing, and I think you've said mm-hmm. you have this before, is I don't necessarily know what I'm going to write until I start writing. Like if I'm writing a, a scene in fiction, you know, like yeah. the, the, it's the process of writing that helps bring out the content. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and other issues come into play as well. And the final version perhaps feels a bit lacking. So, uh, we, you know, you can forgive a lot of us if we, if we, we wonder, you know, imagine how perfect it would, it would have been if you'd been able to simply beam your vision directly onto a videotape. Yeah. You don't have to worry about casting it, uh, <laughs> where you're going to film all your weird art film, your art effects, how are you going to get that, that chair to go upside down? No, you can just beam it directly onto the, onto the tape. Um, and so maybe the power then of your vision would be so pure and uncut that it would just literally slay people. (laughs) Well, I like that. But on the other hand, I mean, I think it's sort of – if trying to imagine this highlights the unreality of what it is you're trying to imagine. I mean, I feel like our image of the thing we want to create is never really fully formed even when it seems like it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if even people who have extremely vivid mental imagery can actually see a full completed painting that they haven't finished painting yet uh, and in, and not just sort of like see glimpses of little bits of color and shape that, that that ultimately add up to something concrete and finalized once you've, you know, translated it through your hand movements into that painting. I, I kind of doubt that people can actually see a full painting that they haven't painted yet. Right. And maybe we maybe part of it is linguistic, you know, like we, we might tend to say a sculptor might say, I see the horse trapped in this block and I wish to free it. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to remove all the pieces around the finished piece that I envision within it. Within reality, it's more like I see the inspiration for the thing that I am going to create. Yeah, a kind of fuzzy, low-resolution suggestion of the thing that you will create, maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then comes the hard work. Then comes the talent uh, and the skill. Uh, one more, th- one more thing about the the ring, and then I'll I'll, I'll mostly let it go. Okay, uh, but. Ultimately, what is the message of this film? Uh, it's it's seen because basically the whole plot is, oh, this these tapes are killing people. Why is it killing people? Oh, it's because of this little girl that died. Uh-huh. And then they, they go on this quest. They're like, oh, well, we can set her spirit free. Yeah, She'll they, be happy and everyone will be saved. And then you realize, oh, no, that doesn't work because she can't be saved. She's just evil to the core uh-huh. and everybody's going to keep on dying. <laughs> right. Uh, well, but they do figure out a way to get around the curse. Which is to keep passing it, keep spreading yeah. it. Uh, so, right. If you you spread the curse to more people, she won't kill you. Yeah. Basically, the plot of, um, of uh, It Follows as well, right? But, oh, yeah. But ultimately, in The Ring, though, Well, it's you like, only get temporarily spared in It Follows. Right. But right. then I think in The Ring, they acknowledge what happens when, like, you know, th- that it might come back to them as well. Oh, okay. But, Maybe that's in the sequels. No, no. I think that was it was kind of at least hinted at in the first oh, one. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't really... I don't try to think about the sequels. But... <laughs> But ultimately, like the message is, don't try to help people. Don't try right. and fix the world. Like everybody's gonna. That's so just so bleak and nihilistic. Uh-huh. Um, maybe it's just too bleak and nihilistic for me now. It's the kind of thing I would have loved when I was younger. But um, but yeah, that's a, such a, a harsh way to land it, isn't it? Yeah, um, it, it's not an inspiring story on close examination. Yeah. But uh, but I do still stand by a lot of the visual imagery in the film, which I think holds up really well. And Brian Cox is just a, an absolute treat. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to move on from just discussing the ring in general, and we're going to discuss this this thing that she is supposed to do. This idea that uh, a mind could somehow imprint an image on something, or in something, or in like on tape or on film, uh, and, and uh, it's going to be one of these topics. That that I think, you know, draws in from a number of past episodes of both Stuff to Blow Your Mind and Invention. All right, we're back. So we're exploring the topic of psychic photography uh, or just generally being able to print the mind's eye into some manifestation in the physical world without going through any kind of normal motor translation process like drawing with your hand or explaining a mental image with your mouth. Just printing the mind's eye directly onto film or onto a piece of paper. Yes, and this is a topic that uh, if you're if you're already thinking, well, that just sounds silly um, – well, hang with us because I, you know, it, ultimately I, I think it's pretty safe to say this is not actually occurring. This is not a power that human beings actually have. But uh, but by looking at it and, and considering like how we get to this point of thinking that it's possible in some cases, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what it reveals about our relationship uh, with our own mind and considerations of our own mind and mental states, as well as our understanding of photography itself. Yeah, this episode made me keep thinking back to the series on photography that we did on our other podcast, Invention, which if you're not subscribed yet, go subscribe to Invention. That's right. It's a journey through human techno history. And uh, yeah, we did a whole series on photography, also stuff before photography like the camera obscura, and mm-hmm. then also on motion picture technology afterwards. And really, you know, we can't uh, you know, overstate 
the degree to which photography changed the world. It changed the way we thought about the world, how we thought about ourselves. It gave us new metaphors for, uh, you know, thinking about our own minds and how we're perceiving the world. And uh, it also arguably made the modern celebrity possible. Uh, So we can lay that crime at its feet as well. Uh, But it also lent itself well to a number of pseudoscientific ideas and ultimately downright occult notions about what photography was and what it might capture. Well, sure, because if you are, say, somebody who is uh, adamant that there is a type of reality that we can't normally see, a very common place to go to try to find bits of evidence of that reality that we can't normally see is some kind of objective recorded media. I mean, Mm -hmm. think about the people who do uh, EVP ghost recordings, uh, electronic voice phenomena. Uh, Again, this is not something that I think is real evidence of ghosts, but a lot of people think, okay, I I take my tape recorder to a haunted graveyard and I just leave it going and then I play it back and in through the static and the rustling and the wind, I hear voices saying things. If I can be psychological for a minute, I, I think what's mostly going on is that drawing from objective recording media like that allows people to generate the noise into which they can read a signal. Yes. And of course, photography, when it was new, provided a, a whole new way of doing something like this. Right. And then other technologies that were coming out around the, you know, in the, the same era, we also had the X-ray, uh, which we also have an, an episode of invention about, which deals with invisible um, you know, processes, you know, invisible rays, an invisible world. Yeah. And, and also was a big game changer in how we, we thought about reality. Sure. So uh, I was reading a little more about, about this, and I ran across a 2005 book titled The Perfect Medium by Shiro et al. And it, it, uh, it gets into the intersections between the occult and photography, uh, which are numerous, numerous but uh, the authors point out that they generally, they generally fall into three categories. First of all, photographs of spirits in which a spirit entity shows up in the photograph. Mm-hmm. I think we're all familiar with examples of this. Uh, 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 and then another is photographs of mediums in which the spirit medium, which is a you know human, like a, someone who's leading a seance or something, is doing something supernatural. Okay, so it might be like a photograph that shows that during a seance this medium was levitating. Right. Or that this medium uh, during some kind of session was generating ectoplasm. Right. And that's the next one. Photographs of fluids. Ah. And, and this one is interesting because uh, the, the obvious subject matter here is exoplasm, some weird substance emerging from the individual. And, and in reality, it's generally wet sheep's cloth or you know, something <laughs> right. like that. Uh, and it's easy to just think of this as ghost slime in a Ghostbusters fashion. Uh, maybe we should explain ectoplasm just a little bit more. So it was this phenomenon where a medium would claim that they can generate some kind of physical manifestation of the spirit world that shows up when you take a picture of them in the dark maybe yeah uh, and it would yeah so it would look like some kind of weird cloth or slime beside their head or on their body like ba- like a big like mucus something yeah. like not it doesn't even generally it just looks like some sort of weird mucusy cloth they got slimed yeah or slimer yeah. exactly I mean that's where that comes from but it's also a bit more more complex than this 
society, you know, the, the fluids in these photographs. As Shiro and I'll point out, you know, it's dealing with this, the, the idea that you're capturing a sense of the vital force, the soul, the thoughts, feelings, dreams, etc. All of this directly captured on a photographic plate without the use of a camera in some cases. Mm-hmm. So it, it has a strong connection to what was going on at the time in observation of X-rays and radioactivity. Mm-hmm. They point out that in France, so Louis Darget and others, quote, sought to photograph their own vital energy or thoughts simply by placing their fingers or foreheads on the synthesized plate. Despite numerous uh, uh, refutations by scientists who demonstrated that the traces thus obtained were no more than photographic artifacts arising out of the experimental conditions themselves, attempts to record human fluids continued throughout the 20th century. And so this, these fluids would not just be like blood or something. They would be these, these spiritual fluids. Yeah, and it gets beyond just like mere fluids and into also things like auras. Yeah. Um, so in other words— in oh, the, people still do photographing oh, yeah. auras. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah, that's like big business. Yeah, so you know, in other words, in the midst of all this, what was essentially future shock, you know, uh, it, uh, this emerging technology and the hidden worlds exposed through x-rays, this idea of capturing thoughts through photography carried a fair amount of weight no matter what the science said and is still saying right. about it. Uh, so the authors point to, to, uh, to, uh, to a couple of examples, one of which is the work of uh, uh, Simeon uh, Kurlean in uh, the 1940s. Uh, Kurlean, of course, is where we get Kurlean photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived 1898 through 1978. And it's a process in which an image is obtained by the application of a high-frequency electric field to an object so that it radiates a characteristic pattern of luminescence that is recorded on photographic film. And it ultimately has to do with moisture and other factors, but but claims were made that it captured some aspect of an individual's health, their essence, or their vital bodily energy. Okay, so there's some kind of like invisible quality they have that's showing up when you run this electric current and take a picture. Right, and and I think it still factors into some sort of, to to some like alternative, like new age uh, systems. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it's ultimately you're, you're dealing with Something that is perhaps a a what is you know a supernatural uh, interpretation of some visual data uh, mm-hmm. that you've created, which uh, you know if, as long as you're not not you know claiming that it's one hundred percent scientific, I guess <laughs> you know go for it. Um, it just falls under the domain of. Um, of, 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 of spiritualism and, and religion. Mm-hmm. They also point to uh, a man by the name of Ted Sirios, who we will come back to in a bit. Yes. Because we, before we get to Sirios, we have to explore the origins of uh, this very act that Samara in the ring is, uh, is, is engaging in. Uh, this idea uh, that human beings are capable not only of photography, which photography in and of itself is an amazing accomplishment. Right. It's this, this, this must tr- have seemed magic when it was new. Oh, absolutely. Because you, as we discussed in Invention, you know, it's, it's this perfect uh, convergence of, uh, of optical expertise and chemical expertise. Mm-hmm. And artistic expertise, all of it coming together in this new way of uh, of, of, of dealing with the visual world. Um, but then we have this added idea that people can also engage in photography. Right, photography. Uh, it, it goes by several names now: psychic photography, maybe photography. And its modern origins are. I, I think you could, you could argue that they are in Japan. So I want to talk about a researcher named Fukurai Tomokichi. 
who is a Japanese psychologist who lived from 1869 to 1952. He was educated at Tokyo Imperial University in the 1890s. He studied in their philosophy department because this would have been when psychology was brand new. There weren't like mm-hmm. psychology departments, you know, at the, or there wouldn't have been many if there were any at the time. And he received his PhD after doing a dissertation on hypnotism. And according to the history of Japanese psychology by Brian J. McVeigh, uh, which is my source on most of this about uh, Fukurai, uh, Fukurai played an important role in introducing the work of the pioneering American psychologist William James to Japanese scholars. Of course, William James would have been a contemporary of Fukurai's. Uh, James's The Principles of Psychology came out in 1890, and his lectures, which began became the varieties of religious experience, which we've talked about a number of times on the show. Those happened around 1901 and 1902, I think. Uh, But so this would have been around the same time that Fukurai was working and, and doing his dissertation and doing his early research. Now, according to McVeigh, Fukurai also published work on the subject of education, and he became a lecturer and an associate professor in the field of abnormal psychology, which today we would just call the study of mental illnesses. And he, so he was a lecturer at Tokyo Imperial University on these subjects. But from here, his interests apparently took a turn for the paranormal. So beginning sometime around 1910, Fukurai became extremely interested in spiritualism, especially in the subject of clairvoyance. Now, of course, we should note that he would not have been alone in this at the time. Uh, Interest in spiritualism, mediums, and the paranormal enjoyed extreme popularity in elite circles all around the world at this time. Now, today, clairvoyance is usually understood to be a special kind of psychic power. A common definition of it is, quote, the supposed faculty of perceiving things or events in the future or beyond normal sensory contact. Now, like a lot of psychic concepts, I see clairvoyance invoked to refer to sort of a broad range of things. Uh, So I think it can include all manner of cases of remote viewing. So like seeing things that are behind physical barriers, you know, you shouldn't be able to see through the closed door into the next room, but you can. Seeing things that are far away, you know, maybe seeing things that are happening in another country, seeing things that are separated in time in the future or the past. Uh, and sometimes, but less often, seeing things that can't normally be seen at all, such as spiritual essences or the contents of other people's thoughts or otherwise having knowledge that you just couldn't acquire by normal means. Now, of course, it's worth noting that all of these things, uh, as psychic phenomenon, they are basically exaggerations of things that the human mind does right. through um, – uh, you know, through uh, mental time travel, for instance, imagining mm. what the future will be like or, or remembering what the past was. Uh-huh. Uh, the idea of not being able to see through a wall into the next room and see what's going on there, but perform, but, but you know, conceiving a mental picture of what it might be like. Like, for instance, there's another recording studio here in the office. I cannot see in there with my mind, but with my mind, I can imagine that the guys from Stuff They Don't Want You to Know are in there right now recording something. And but you cannot imagine. Imagine what they are doing. <laughs> I, but I can form a, a pretty basic idea that no. they're sitting around a table talking. It will not fit in your brain what they're doing. <laughs> it's, it's, it looks just like what we're doing, Joe. The, the, the subject matter is slightly different. But, but at any rate, I'm, uh, what I'm saying is I, I can form a pretty good idea, but I know that that is just my brain creating a simulation mm. of my environment. 
Right. But I mean, I think a lot of this clairvoyant stuff hinges on the concept of generating accurate knowledge. It's like all the stuff we can do with our imagination, except right. they can do it to see reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kind of clairvoyance that Fukurai was most interested in, I think, would be covered by the first two categories of things I said. So mostly like seeing things that are far away and seeing across physical barriers. According to McVeigh, he was focused on something called Toshi, which meant something like seeing through, as in seeing through barriers, and on Sinrigan, which meant the far-seeing eye. And in this parapsychology phase of his life, Fukurai was aided by another Japanese researcher named Imamura Shinkichi. Now, Fukurai studied a, a reputed Japanese clairvoyant named Mifune Chizuko and another named Nagao Ikuko. And McVeigh writes that in 1910, Fukurai performed a series of experiments in front of a panel of scholars and experts that he believed would demonstrate Mifune Chizuko's power to read out written messages even after they'd been sealed inside envelopes and then placed inside lead containers. And apparently an attempt to replicate these experiments the following year in 1911 was not as successful as Fukurai and Mifune had hoped. And a lot of people considered that Fukurai's research was clearly misguided after some failed demonstrations. And he and his supposed clairvoyant subjects like Nagao and Mifune were criticized in the press. And at least uh, I think it's implied that partially as a result of these failures and subsequent criticism, McVeigh writes that both Mifune and uh, Nagao Ikuko committed suicide in the year 1911. Hmm. But uh, before – I've also seen another cause of death attributed to uh, Nagao Ikuko. So I'm not sure about that. But McVeigh says that, that she also died by suicide. But before she died in 1911, Nagao Ikuko appeared to demonstrate a novel form of psychic power that fascinated Fukurai. And this was apart from traditional clairvoyance. This was the power that Fukurai called Ninsha, which would have roughly translated as thoughtography. Uh, the, the Japanese term ninsha comes from the combination of nen, meaning like sense or feeling, and sha, meaning picture. And in concrete terms, this just means that Fukurai believed that Nagao had the power to use her mind's eye to expose a dry plate of photographic film, essentially burning her thoughts directly onto the physical substrate, the same way that light prints an image onto a piece of film. Now, uh, after Mifune and Nagao died, Fukurai continued his research and he published a book about clairvoyance and photography in 1913, which was widely criticized as credulous and unscientific. And Fukurai eventually lost his university position, moved on to other things, though he apparently continued to be interested in paranormal research well into his retirement in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, one weird thing is before he was publicly ridiculed and ousted from his position at Tokyo University, Fukurai was considered an elite scholar at the head of Japanese psychology. He was not, you know, just some crank writing pamphlets in his basement. He was uh, he was a top scholar and his, his academic exile had consequences. Uh, I was reading in the Oxford Handbook of the History of Psychology, Global Perspectives by David B. Baker, that in reaction to the Fukurai affair – a new head of the psychology department at Tokyo Imperial University decided that the department could rehabilitate its reputation by only focusing on, quote, normal psychology, Hmm. ignoring both of Fukurai's areas of study, meaning parapsychology, like the study of psychics, and, quote, 
abnormal psychology, which again would amount to the study of mental illness. Uh, now, of course, saying we're not going to study mental illnesses is a huge limitation on academic psychology, uh, which the authors write in this book, uh, quote, stunted the rise of clinical psychology in pre-war Japan. Yeah, absolutely, though, because yeah, studying mental illness is a way not only of understanding how to treat mental illness, but also to understand like what uh, uh, you know how the, the the mind is functioning in individuals who are are not uh, uh, experiencing mental illness. You right. Know? I mean, it, it it provides a a frame of reference. Yeah, a lot of the, for example, a lot of the biggest breakthroughs in the history of psychology have come from studying patients who have brain injuries or lesions oh, of absolutely. some kind. Yeah. That, like they show you how the brain changes when certain uh, or how the, the mind changes and how behavior changes when certain physical changes are made to the brain. Uh, and of course, I, I've seen it alleged by a number of writers that the, the stories of people like Mifune Chizuko and uh, Nagawi Kuko inspired the fictional ghost in the original ring by Suzuki Koji. I, I don't know if that's uh, correct, but it's at least been alleged that there's some thread of inspiration there. Um, and, I, you know, I, I want to be a little bit sympathetic to Fukurai and consider the historical context. Like in the year 1910, it was only 15 years previous that X-rays and X-ray photography had been discovered. We, we sort of alluded to this earlier, right? Uh, the German physicist Wilhelm Röntgen, uh, he discovered X-rays by accident in the year 1895 when he was performing experiments with a type of early cathode ray tube, which was an electrical device that shoots a beam of electrons across space inside an evacuated tube from one electrode to another. And Röntgen noticed when he was running these experiments, he'd put current through the cathode ray tube in a darkened room, it would make this particular screen in the room. It was a screen of uh, barium platinocyanide, which is like a type of photographic plate. It would make that glow. And this puzzled him, of course, so he tried to run some more experiments and he discovered that he could use the cathode ray tube to expose photographic plates inside a completely dark room, except the photos were nothing like anybody on Earth had ever seen. A human hand placed in front of the tube, uh, between the tube and the plate, would create an exposure almost completely ignoring the fleshy parts of the hand but showing the bones hidden underneath the flesh. And uh, when Röntgen created an X-ray exposure of his wife's hand, she reportedly looked at the images of her bones and said, I have seen my death. Uh, yeah, and if you want more about this, we talk about this in our X-ray episode of Invention. But the, the X-ray photo was a radically, completely new way of imaging the hidden reality inside the body. It had been discovered almost completely by accident and it had been only like 15 years before this. So of course, photography itself was maybe like 80 to 90 years old at the time. And so you add to that the fact that people were proposing all kinds of other hypothetical classes of rays at the time. You remember we talked about N-rays. Yes. It turned uh -huh. out those didn't exist. But people were just thinking that there were all kinds of rays we didn't detect or understand yet, invisible forces beaming out from one object to another. Um, Fukurai was wrong, I think. He, I think he was misguided, but I don't think it was crazy at the time, uh, or certainly not as crazy as it seems now, to think that the hidden anatomy that governed the mind's eye and the brain might leave some kind of print on a piece of film via rays projected out of the head. 
I don't know. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have to put our, ourselves in the framework of the time, and yeah. uh, and, and and really, again, in the, the the sense of future shock that would have uh, would have still been resonating, and in, to a certain extent, still resonates. Because I think one of the one of the things that we're going to keep uh, seeing in these episodes is that, and, and I think this is revealed uh, again in our our photography series on invention, is that uh, photography is a complicated process that brings in uh, you know at, at least two different fields, uh, with third if you count uh, uh, the artistic uh, uh, world as well, but certainly mm-hmm. optics and chemistry. And n- not everyone really has a firm grasp on that. Like it, to, for a lot of us, it still kind of feels like magic. A Polaroid camera, uh, you know, where, where it you know, instantly gives you the, the image is sort of magic. Yeah. Uh, and when we, when we don't understand something completely, it, it, it allows us to engage in uh, unrealistic modes of, uh, of thought about what is going on with the, the, uh, the, the camera, what is going on with photography. Yeah. All right. We're going to keep talking about all this, uh, but we're going to take one quick break first. All right, we're back. So uh, I want to talk just a little bit about um, this idea of remote viewing, uh, which uh, which Fukurai was definitely involved in. Here. Yeah, uh, this idea that you know you could just you could see what's going on in, in another place, either in another room, uh, another part of the world, sealed envelope, sealed envelope, um, or another planet. Yeah, and you know another uh, example of an accomplished individual in their field who is also a prominent uh, uh, pr- proponent of remote viewing is Atlanta's own uh, Courtney Brown. Hmm. Uh, an associate professor in the political science department at Emory University. He also works in nonlinear mathematics. Uh-huh. Uh, so we see in uh, Fukurai an interest in hypnosis, uh, and then Brown is versed in meditation. Uh, meditation-induced light experiences can occur and have been linked to similar experiences in sensory deprivation. Uh, and, and, and I've seen things like that in, in yogic meditation as well, where you will be, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing lights or shapes or, or some sort of uh, imagery mm-hmm. uh, that feels as if it is, it is arising and it is not called forth. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh-huh. like it doesn't feel like it's something that you are consciously imagining. It doesn't feel like something that is dictated by the default mode network. You know, it doesn't feel like the sort of images um, or thoughts that are normally bombarding our brain. Well, I think about how often in psychedelic experiences people talk about believing they've encountered an other. Yeah. Uh, where if you just, I mean, you know, it's impossible to know for sure, but it seems like probably what's going on is they're having an internal experience experience with their own brain, but there are some types of experiences that we just for whatever reason feel are exogenous. It feels like it's coming from outside you. Right. And so with with the right amount of of priming, uh, expectation, and ultimately consolidation, like any one of these experiences, be it something that is due to the use of psychedelics or something that is acquired through meditation, hypnosis, etc. Um, because as we've discussed before, like even normal, our normal sensory uh, view of the world is like, inherently uh, hallucinatory. Yeah. You know, it is in its, in its own way an illusion. Uh, it's um, not the way things are. It's just like a useful sort of movie that we can interact with the world through. Right. So if you're having an experience like that and it feels real, Right, and then you can see how even like, like certainly very intelligent people uh, can 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 
come to believe that, that they are actually perceiving uh, the reality of a distant location mm-hmm. and be, become very convinced of it. And then certainly if you have uh, a name for this as well, you know, it becomes kind of established in parapsychology, then, then that also helps. That gives you even more like priming and conditioning uh, to, uh, in which to frame this experience. And, and also, I mean, just to go back to psychedelics too, and certainly our episode on psychedelics, like we see that trend uh, in the 20th century, right? This, this counterculture emerged, this idea taking uh, shape that secular individuals can have a, essentially a mystical experience that is not due to the machinations of gods or angels, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's not surprising that we see all, you know, uh, cases like this arising. Well, I'd also say on top of that, there's just uh, – I think there's a, a very respectable humility impulse mm-hmm. that says like, OK, you know, we should always accept that there may be forces at work in our day-to-day surroundings that we don't fully understand. You know, we don't have a scientific theory that accounts for them yet. And I, I think that's a good thing to to start from. But I think a lot of like parapsychology and paranormal type people jump from there to – because we we should acknowledge that there are lots of things about the world we don't understand yet, therefore remote viewing is real, right. you know, or like therefore, uh, the, you know, you can't discount thoughtography. And finding the right balance there I think is part of the difficulty of living the skeptical life. You know, you don't want to live a life of denialism where you just like anytime something is strange or unexplained, you just say like, well, that's nonsense. <laughs> but at the same time, you want to maintain a high standard of evidence and that's, that's the tightrope wall. I guess you've got to do if you want to be a scientific investigator, if you want to try to have the most accurate view you can of the world. And there are always going to be these edge cases where somebody's presenting, you know, evidence that maybe maybe seems compelling for some kind of phenomenon that doesn't really seem like it like it fits with well-tested theories that otherwise predict the physical world. And I think that's the case that some of these investigators have run into with psychic photography, uh, especially in the cases we'll talk Talk about with Ted Sirius. Absolutely, I should also point out that uh, we, we always have to remember that the uh, the CIA sunk uh, something like twenty million dollars into the Stargate project in the nineteen nineties in an attempt to to ascertain the effectiveness and military potential of remote viewing. And this project was ultimately terminated, and remote viewing was found uh, unfruitful to their needs. Mm-hmm. But maybe it was a conspiracy. Who knows? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, I, I tend to think like if there – I mean, first of all, I, I've got major objections to remote viewing just on like a plausibility basis. Like, you know, again, you can't rule things out just because you don't know the mechanism. But if you've got a pretty good picture of how physics works and it just – you know, there are powers proposed that don't seem to fit in any way with any – you know any physical forces that you could identify that's that should definitely be a red flag to start with and then on top of that i think there are additional plausibility problems with remote viewing which is like if it is if it does exist why isn't it being taken better advantage of yeah uh and that being said i do come back to like what i said earlier like even though it's not scientifically uh, feasible, mm-hmm. as, as far as we understand it, um, you know that doesn't mean that you know people shouldn't be interested in it and uh, uh, or even you know practice it. But it, it needs to be more of I feel like it is more definitely in the line of like a spiritual or religious practice, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but that's my just my two cents on it. And I think that's one of the problems that, and we're going to see that with a lot of these these people that uh, that are that are claiming these abilities, is they are not presenting them as something that is 
you know, ultimately like the domain of the spiritual, something that can't really be proven or disproven. But they're but they're agreeing to tests. They're agreeing to uh, to uh, uh, performances of their ability mm. and inviting, in some cases, experts to to see what they're doing and to to, to try and find uh, the problems in it. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's something to keep in mind as we move forward. All right, so let's come back to a figure that we've we've mentioned the name already, uh, Ted Sirius. That's uh, S E R I O S. Is it Sirius or Sirios? Sirios. Let's go with Sirios. <laughs> well, you say that, I'll say Sirius, just Sirius? to be confusing, like Sirius Black. Uh, <laughs> um, so Sirius lived uh, nineteen eighteen through two thousand six, and he claimed to be able to create photographs on Polaroid film. Yeah. So um, this is an interesting figure, um, to say the least. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I was reading a little bit about this in, the, in that book, uh, The Perfect Medium. Uh, parapsychologist Stephen E. Broad writes about him. Uh, who, Broad is also a, a philosophy professor. Uh, and uh, he contends that Cyrus's photography is perhaps the best documented and perhaps the most impressive. Does he seem a little uh, sympathetic to maybe he he did have some psychic powers? Um, I, I mean, I encourage everyone to read uh, Broad's work for themselves because mm-hmm. he um, he certainly is more inclined to to criticize some of the um, the individuals who have been attributed as being like solid debunkers. Uh-huh. At the very least, he seems to be saying, uh, look, whatever Ciros was doing, it's not nearly as debunked as you think it is. Okay. Um, and, I, I'm, and he is a parapsychologist. He is a parapsychologist. So, uh, so I'm going to stress all of that. Uh, but uh, it's still an interesting read. He does seem to be more inclined to um, entertain the possibility, though. Uh-huh. So Sirius uh, was a Chicago bellhop who had experimented with, with hypnosis. And uh, he claims that during this time, he found that he could use his mind to project images onto camera film and later instant Polaroid film. And uh, he apparently demonstrated this to various folks and was quite convincing. And this uh, caught the attention of Denver uh, psychiatrist and researcher Jewel Eisenbud, who took a a strong interest in his work and conducted numerous trials, resulting in hundreds of images. Yeah. And I've read that Eisenbud is one of the main reasons that people really know about Ted Sirius. Like he sort of took up the cause. Like – or at least from what I read, Eisenbud claimed he was initially uh, skeptical of Ted Sirius's abilities. But then after spending time with him and seeing his photographs, he, he came more and more to believe that these powers were real and that Sirius really could project his mind's eye onto a piece of film. Yeah. Uh, Eisenbud at one point believed that Sirius was seeing via essentially remote viewing uh, the surface of the Jovian moon Ganymede yeah. and then using photography. Uh, to implant that image on onto film, right? And it gets more complex than that, actually, because I was reading that. Uh, so Sirius apparently made these images that Eisenbud later said, "Oh, this is the surface of Ganymede," because he said that Sirius was very interested in space exploration and mm-hmm. had been thinking about the Voyager two probe, mm-hmm. and that must have been what triggered his generation of this image of the surface of of Ganymede. But at the time he generated the image, the photographs from the Voyager probe had not been taken yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Eisenbud is suggesting that if these photos are real, Sirius actually not only projected his thoughts directly onto film, but also precognitively remote viewed the surface okay. of uh, of 
wait, precognitive. Well, I guess it wouldn't have mattered whether the Voyager probe got there yet. He was seeing the surface of the moon before the probe got there. Right. And, and I've seen this in, in other, uh, you know, accounts of remote viewing where they have, they have essentially seen other worlds or have encountered historic figures, that sort of thing. Right. Now, another thing worth noting about Sirius here is that, uh, is, is that uh, even Eisenbud like points out that, that, uh, that Ted, it was definitely an alcoholic, and, oh, uh, and I mean, that's sort of part of the yeah. thing. Yeah, well, but, but also displayed like a lot of you know at, at times kind of like irrational behavior, and uh-huh. seemed to have you know definite um, uh, you know psychological issues. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but but anyway, this was basically Sirius's uh, process. Okay. So he generally he, he needed to be drunk, uh, generally very drunk, uh, to to perform this art. Okay. Which uh, I mean, I guess that's fair enough, right? I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, really, even podcasting. I remember when when, when we first started podcasting, um, uh, Jerry told us, like, have a little drink before you go into the podcast booth. It'll help. What? Yeah. Jerry ever told me that? Oh, well, maybe maybe <laughs> I just looked like I needed a drink at the, at the time. I don't know. But Wait, are you serious? I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, I think she was joking. But, oh, okay. Uh, but at any rate, like the idea that you would need a social lubricant to essentially to perform something. Uh-huh. Um, Either you know a legitimate psychic ability, or to perform some sort of a trick, some sort of a um, an illusion, or, uh-huh. or even a confidence trick, right? Um, so that's one part of it. Also, he preferred to hold a what he called a gizmo in his hand <laughs> to help him focus his powers, uh-huh. and it was a um, a short open cylinder about an inch in diameter. And of course, this is highly suspicious. You right. don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to suspect that the gizmo is either the heart of the trick that he is going to uh, perform, or it's a decoy to distract onlookers from the actual trick. Right. Um, because he'd often place this in front of the camera lens, like he'd get up in, into the into the camera lens with the gizmo, and then also like you know mugging for the camera, placing his forehead in the way, and uh-huh. uh, somehow using the gizmo allegedly to focus his thoughts into the camera. Yeah, he said he needed to connect his body to the camera, uh, though there are allegations also that he was able to produce thoughtographs and uh, and and actually make images on a camera while being far away from the camera uh, th- that at least is alleged but he most of the time it is said would like put his forehead right on this thing and stick it in the camera camera lens so yeah raises some red flags right but, but then the idea yeah is that he's essentially taking a snapshot of the mental image that he is forming in his mind be it, be it, be it a, a mental image that is formed via memory mm-hmm. or just sort of general uh, mental imaging or it's something that is a, he has acquired through um, uh, you know sending his consciousness to a, to a, the moons of Jupiter. Yeah. Now, I read some conflicting reports that sometimes it seems like the images he produced, he claimed, were like not what he was thinking about consciously but just would be these unconscious kind of associative images. That's what's suggested by Eisenbud uh, – the uh, the the Galilean moon right mm-hmm. uh, is that he just had the Voyager two probe on his mind and happened to generate an image of the surface of Ganymede and so if we're approaching it from the you know the pro psychic side we can say well that makes sense the mind is difficult to control mental images may form in the mind that you you're not trying to summon certainly we can all attest to that on the other hand from a purely skeptical point of view if you're going to be 
drawn in and put to the test by asking, you know, being asked to think of a particular thing, how convenient would it be if you could say, well, I tried to think of that, uh, that, that bird feeder that you wanted me to imagine, but I'm just mm-hmm. so obsessed with space travel right now, uh, I gave you Ganymede instead. Right. I mean, that makes – that suggests that maybe you've already got an image of something that looks like a moon's surface on hand with you or something. Right. Uh, and I guess that gets to what the actual trick would be if there is a trick here, which – I assume there probably is. Right. Now, now in that article in The Perfect Medium, uh, Broad certainly focuses on the aspects of Ted's art that kind of continue to mystify us. He mentions, for instance, that Eisenbud offered a cash reward for anyone able to replicate Ted's results, quote, under conditions similar to those prevailing during the, during the experiments. Now, I've read that there was serious dispute about, uh, like, them negotiating with skeptics about what would be acceptable for right. those uh, conditions. Like, I think I read that uh, James Randi wanted to try to replicate it, but that Eisenbud said, well, you have to be really drunk because Ted is always really drunk when he does it. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, the the, the famous debunker uh, James Randi, who we had the privilege to meet uh, oh, last yeah. year, yeah. Um, uh, it definitely plays into some of this and is kind of uh, – if you, if you read some of the more pro-Serios uh, material, mm-hmm. Randi's kind of portrayed as a villain. <laughs> oh, all, he, Randi is always the villain of something written by pro-psychic powers people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, some of these account, – like broad account tends to highlight the things that were not – you know that are still a little mysterious, mm-hmm. or 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 certainly accounts of uh, replications that don't meet the same degree of replication. Like you weren't able to do exactly what Sirius is doing, therefore you didn't fully debunk him. Well, I've I've read some of his defenders say, okay, people have used tricks to replicate what Sirius was doing, but they couldn't do it without those tricks being evident to people who were watching. Right. Um, I mean, the other way to think about it is. Can I can I paint the Mona Lisa? No, I cannot. Mm-hmm. Can I demonstrate some of the techniques personally that uh, that uh, that the artist used to create the Mona Lisa? Uh, certainly, uh, you, we we have to take into account that Sirius, assuming again that he's not a psychic, uh, that he's not a uh, not ca- capable of photography, mm-hmm. that he's just a, a performer, an illusionist, uh, a, you know, a trickster. Uh, there is still an art to what he is doing. Uh, there is still a performance aspect, a charismatic aspect to it. Sure. And there are aspects of that that are going to depend in part on like innate charisma, mm-hmm. but also in in practice, in in like sheer devotion to uh, to the trick. And I think you can't discount that. And on likewise, you can't expect a debunker to rise to that level of performance. Well, I guess you can expect them to try. But I mean, th- that that's one thing that, uh, y- you know, as long as we're – probing the depths of the unexplained, uh, you could say, well, you know, there's some kind of mystical power that this person has that we just don't have the power to explain yet. Or you could say that uh, there's an extreme talent this person has for performing a trick yeah. that hasn't been explained yet. Yeah, because certainly one of the things that would come into play is sleight of hand. Right. Because the, the main charge is that is that uh, uh, Sirius had um, – it, it kind of varies. Sometimes there's talk of just using a microfilm. 
um, or using microfilm affixed to a marble mm-hmm. or uh, you know a film affixed to the end of a tiny tube. This or, would be like inside the quote gizmo that he right. put up against the camera, right? Because that's the obvious, right? Is that the gizmo contains something, and if it contains something, some film would be ideal, yeah. Uh, because then you have that pre-existing photograph that can be the thing that he imprints. Mm-hmm. Um, Skeptic Terrence Hines also charged that Ted used a secondary tube about one inch long with a tiny magnifying lens that could hold a small slide. And then he would conceal this within the gizmo, but also he could use it when the gizmo was taken away. Again, getting into that idea that the gizmo's not merely useful as uh, something to, um, uh, to hide the trick, but also can be used as a distraction, can be the thing that, oh, when it's taken away, look, I can still do it. I don't even have the gizmo on me. Right. Right. And it was alleged that sometimes he could, I mean, usually he used the gizmo, but it's alleged that sometimes he did it without the gizmo. Right. Now, there were a number of exposés at the time that claimed to show that uh, Ted Sirius was a fraud. Uh, the, the entry in the Skeptics Dictionary by Robert Todd Carroll suggests that two amateur magicians and photographers named Charlie Reynolds and David Eisendrath uh, exposed Sirius as a fraud. Uh, basically, they went and spent a weekend with him and Jewel Eisenbud, and they saw his stuff. And and they, they came to the conclusion that he was a fraud and wrote this up in the article. Uh, and Reynolds and Eisendrath claimed to have spotted Sirius, quote, slipping something inside his little gizmo before demonstrations. And they think it was a picture of something that Sirius wanted to show up in the camera exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also uh, published an article explaining their findings in an October 1967 issue of Popular Photography. It was a photography magazine. Now, according to the skeptic investigator Joe Nichols' account of uh, Sirius's confrontation with magicians and sleight of hand experts. Quote, At one point during the session, after an exposure was made, a magician asked to examine the paper tube to see if there was anything inside. This would be the gizmo, right? Right, the gizmo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sirius backed away, putting his hand in his pocket. Now, that's suspicious behavior. Uh, but then, weirdly, during this session, Sirius was unable to produce photographs. So apparently he'd been using the gizmo. They said, let me see the gizmo. He wouldn't show it to them, and then none of the pictures came out anyway. There were no photographs. Uh, and he and Eisenbud blamed the, quote, hostile atmosphere for interfering with Sirius's powers. Mm. This is always a red flag also, yeah. I think. But uh, there are still plenty of people, I think, who hold out for psychic photography, claiming that Ted Sirius's powers were real and could not be explained. And uh, he's got defenders who say that some of his feats are just impossible to explain. For example, uh, I was reading claims in an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education which was about a gallery exhibit of Sirius's photographs, which I would like to see. That would be fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're interesting images, certainly uh-huh. when you know the background for them. Well, especially if you just think about them as works of art, not mm-hmm. as like displays of real psychic powers. Um, but to quote from this article, quote, on occasion, volunteers were asked to attend the experiment with a photograph sealed in a cardboard-backed manila envelope. Sirius then managed to reproduce the image with no prior knowledge of it. So again, that's like double psychic powers. That's not just the photography, which would be a feat even if he was looking directly at what the photo should be, mm-hmm. um, but also, I guess, seeing into this uh, envelope. If I'm reading that right, I, I don't know. That might also be suggesting that they just arrived with it sealed and then showed it to him and he re- reproduced it. Either way, I mean, if you saw that, I wouldn't say that would prove it was real, but that would be impressive. You know, you'd yeah. be like, well, that, that's 
either real or some impressive trickery, I'd lean toward the latter. Um, but in, in other cases, he apparently managed to produce what appeared to be images of landmarks from up above, like aerial views that his supporters claimed could not be explained through trickery. Uh, but it seems like he stopped doing his thing after the late 1960s, which seems a little weird. Yeah, especially considering he lived until 2006. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, that's that's a lot of time to not at least not be publicly doing this, uh, displaying this uh, this ability. Uh, but then again, um, you know, we, we do have to come back to you know the fact that uh, Eisenbud himself wrote that Sirius was a you know psychologically disturbed alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You know, you can come up with various uh, you know reasons that somebody uh, with that kind of uh, with with those kind of demons would not engage in their art. Now, he uh, wasn't the only one in the later 20th century to get in on the psychic photography thing. Over the years, a lot of figures, including Uri Geller, uh, got into psychic photography. Uh, one, one of Geller's many demonstrations was that he would leave the lens cap on a camera, place the camera to his forehead, and then take a picture, supposedly saying, you know, the same kind of thing. I'm using my mind's eye to imprint upon the film. And then the photo would reveal whatever he had been imagining. Uh, again, James Randi shows up, as he often does whenever Uri Geller claims something. James Randi uh, criticized this and other psychic photography as having two main explanations, either using a handheld device to project the image into the camera lens as the photo is taken, or loading the camera with pre-exposed film already bearing the desired image. Mm. And the latter seems to be the case with a uh, later 20th century alleged psychic named uh, uh, Masuaki Kiyoda, who claimed to be able to produce photographs on film again. And uh, skeptical critics such as Joe Nickel have pointed out that when uh, Masuaki Kiyoda was asked to perform his photography under controlled conditions for a TV crew in London, he couldn't produce the images. And Nickel claims that uh, it was only times when he was able uh, to get the film and have it alone with him, like basically to get hold of the film and have it in a private place before the test that he could demonstrate his powers, which again makes you think he was doing something to the film before it was loaded in the camera. All right. Well, on that note, we are going to have to call it for episode one of this exploration. Uh, But we are going to return in a second episode where we're going to continue to explore this idea. Like, how would it work if this were possible? Like, what, what, po- what can we grasp onto in the, the labyrinth of the human mind and the complexity of our, 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 our sensory uh, perception? Uh, but also, what can this question reveal about the reality of, of mental imagery and how that happens in the brain, which is a, a fascinating, mysterious, and even spooky topic on its own, even though we don't necessarily credit the reality of psychic photography. There's a lot of spooky stuff going on when you picture something. Right. And uh, we'll probably talk about The Ring a little bit more, Uh and we'll probably bring up a few other uh, films, such as uh, Scanners. So, uh, hey, be sure to tune in for that episode. Tune in for all of our episodes in October, which are going to be Halloween-flavored. And uh, we encourage you again to check out Invention. If you haven't already, you can find it wherever you get your podcast. You can find the the website at inventionpod.com. If you want to support our show, the best thing you can do is rate and review it wherever you have the power to do so, and make sure you have subscribed. Huge thanks, as always, to our awesome audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to 
Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we are back with part two of our discussion of psychic photography, the uh, the, the press of the mind's eye. That's right. Uh, we kicked off last episode talking about the ring in which a, uh, a psychically gifted, uh, disturbed uh, little girl is able to uh, uh, use her, the power of her mind uh, to burn images into things, including into the, uh, the, the film of a V. VHS tape. Sure. And, uh, but uh, also into all kinds of surfaces. Right. Yeah. But, but she's most famous for her, uh, her video work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she's the video artist. Yeah. She's a video artist. Uh, true artist. True artist. Knox Harrington. Yeah. So uh, that's where we started off. But we use that then to get into this idea of photography, of uh, uh, this, this alleged uh, psychic uh, power by which certain individuals were able to use the powers of their mind uh, to either um, you know, focus mental images into, uh, say, undeveloped camera films. Mm-hmm. Or make it so they could like point a camera at their own forehead and take a picture of the uh, interior imaging of their mind, uh, things of that nature. Yeah, the idea was that somehow mental imagery, you know, things that you are picturing in your brain, could be projected out onto the world without being translated through you know you putting them into language or you sketching with a hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was wondering if you tried to take this idea seriously and say, okay. Okay, if this really did work, how would it work? I was having trouble coming across anything that seemed all that plausible to me. Uh, you know, I found one article with uh, so somebody talking about how, well, maybe consciousness is like an electromagnetic field. I, I'm not sure if I buy that. But even if you did buy that consciousness is an electromagnetic field, how exactly would that translate into you thinking about an image physically pressing the image onto a thing outside your brain? Because there's no reason to think that the electromagnetic field would be like a two-dimensional image image that's the same as the thing you're picturing. Yeah. It, and then, I mean, there's so many problems with it. It's almost difficult to roll out individual problems, like what would be the you know, evolved necessity of doing that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why it would have to just be like a, an accidental byproduct or some, you know, random mutation. Uh, and then would there be a survival advantage to having that mutation? Yeah. Uh, it, it, gets, it gets really sticky really fast. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it, it highlights a kind of like shallow understanding of what mental imagery is. So and, I, yeah, and then yeah. specifically what photography is concerning those examples of the photography that we discussed in the last episode. Yes, exactly. Uh, so I thought maybe we should start today by thinking about 
what is the physical reality of an image in the mind's eye? When you okay, so you stop and you picture something. You mm-hmm. picture Garfield. Okay, you got right. Garfield in mind. Oh. What is happening in your brain when you picture Garfield? Like, is there some two-dimensional grid of brain cells that's like a screen where colors fill in, like pixels on a computer screen, and they form Garfield? It seems kind of implausible, but, you know, entertain that for a second. If there were a way for a mental image to be projected into a physical space, what would be the physical nature of the original signal in the brain and how would it be transferred to the physical form without being interpreted through the body? So I was looking at a couple of papers on the subject of uh, like research and thought about mental imagery. And one one of the ones I was looking at was called Unpicturing a Candle, the Prehistory of Imagery Science. And this was published in uh, Frontiers in Psychology by uh, Matthew McKissick, Susan Aldworth, Fiona McPherson, John Onians, uh, Crawford Winlove, and Adam Zeman. That's a lot of names uh, in 2016. And the authors here focus on the history of scholarship and philosophy concerning visual imagination before modern neuroscience, but they also cover some modern neuroscience, uh, with a a specific focus on the idea of imagining a concrete object, for example, picturing a candle. And so the the authors uh, explore the history. And so, uh, for example, they start by looking at like Plato and Aristotle, and they point out that Plato actually did not hold a very high regard for the importance of mental imagination. Uh, Like for Plato, mental imagery is a copy of a copy. It is a sort of imperfect facsimile of an object in the world which is already merely an imperfect copy of a perfect divine form. Ah, that's interesting. We're getting into the the idea of the realm of forms. Right. Uh, The idea that a chair – there's a perfect version of a chair that exists in the realm of forms. Mm -hmm. The chair we can build is an imperfect interpretation of that. But then then his view is – because I'm more likely to think of it the other way. Like I'm thinking then, well, oh, well, the version of the chair in our mind, that's the realm of forms. But he's saying, no, that's that's even another level uh, removed from the realm of forms. It's an imperfect version of the imperfect chair that is in (laughs) itself an imperfect version of the ideal chair. Absolutely. You're meant image of a pineapple is a flawed copy of some actual pineapple, which is an imperfect realization of eternal pineappleness. Yeah, and I and I think I think he is correct here because, uh, as we've stated in the last episode, we often uh, we often attribute a lot of detail and accuracy to our mental images uh-huh. uh, when they're when they're, it's really not there. It's, yes. it's often a lot more uh, obscure and unfinished uh, than we give it credit. Yeah, I mean, I almost wouldn't think about it in terms of accuracy, but in ter- and maybe this is more specific to the way my brain works, but I think about it even in terms of completeness, like mm-hmm. that when I have a mental image of something, it's not the same as looking at the thing because I'm not, I'm only vaguely grasping the totality of the image when I mentally picture something. It's not like it's just not like looking at a fixed version of the image. It's kind of like a hazy scanning yeah. of different little elements of the image that I can picture in a moment 
against a field of a general impression of the larger image. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I believe a, an example that's often used here is that of a bicycle. If I say, hey, imagine a bicycle, mm-hmm. easy done. I, I'm imagining a bicycle right now. But sure. then if we go to the next step and say, that bicycle you're imagining, describe for me the functionality of its uh, of the of the wheels and the gears and the pedals and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain to me how that works. Oh, yeah. This goes back to our illusion of explanatory depth yeah. episodes, uh, where everybody can picture a bicycle, but can you draw a bicycle? Right. And it turns out, it's just try it. You might end up laughing really hard at yourself because you think you can draw a bicycle, but there's a decent chance you can't. You right. don't know where the bars go, which wheel connects to what. You just don't know, even though you think you can picture it right now. Yeah. So again, uh, Plato, I think, was definitely onto something here. I think Plato hit this one out of the park. Yeah. Uh, but Aristotle, to the contrary, uh, he, he thought that not only was mental imagery important, he thought that you literally could not think without it. Mm. Uh, they quote him saying, the soul never thinks without a phantasma. And the phantasma is like some kind of mental image, which uh, I'm sure this would come as news to our many listeners who tell us about their experiences with aphantasia, meaning that they they say they don't have the ability to form mental images. They can't picture something in their heads. And yet, you know, we've got no reason to disbelieve them on that. And at the same time, they seem perfectly capable of thinking. So it seems perfectly clear to me that mental imagery is not necessary for thought. Right. It is necessary for choosing the form of the destroyer, uh, should Gozer, um, <laughs> right. uh, the traveler, appear to you. Uh-huh. Uh, I often think back of that scene in, in Ghostbusters. Uh, that's how they choose the Stave Puff Marshmallow Man a form. But if all of the Ghostbusters had had aphantasia, then the, uh, the, the destroyer would not have been able to manifest. I think you said that in the original episode. I probably did. I, I hadn't thought about it since then, but that's great. Unless Gozer the Destroyer is even more nefarious than we imagine, and he can also uh, manifest in the shape of something that you put together through, say, uh, words or whatever. Maybe, but I kind of like the idea that it's being an in- interdimensional entity. It's it's limited, mm-hmm. and it really like it it cannot venture into this form unless there is a clear uh, visual image that it can draw from. Like that has to be the. Um, uh, the, the foothold for it to uh, climb back in and begin destroying. Well, to tie it back to psychic photography, actually, this would the case of Gozer taking the form you imagine would be exactly like thoughtography. It would be the case of mental imagery being manifested as a physical object in the world. Yeah, but but it would also it would make more sense that a god can read your mind then your mind can uh, blast a photo, uh, uh, blast an image onto some undeveloped film. I agree. Uh, So picking up again with uh, the the history of mental imagery, uh, Descartes had thoughts about visual imagination, apparently placed it on par with the senses as manifestations of the body, which, of course, in Descartes' view, that makes them fallible because, of course, they can always be mistaken, unlike, in his view, pure logical deduction. If you recall, like the the fight between Descartes and the the empiricists, you know, the empiricists thought that the senses should be primary, but Descartes thought, no, you can't ever fully trust the senses, you've got to go on just like pure logical proofs. Hmm. 
I'm not quite sure why. For some reason, that, that seems like a funny belief uh, looking back on it. Now, of course, later mental imagery became the domain of psychology. Uh, and of course, you know, th that would be treated in different ways depending on the different schools of psychology. One thing that I think is interesting in the history of psychology is the behaviorist school, of course, not being interested in mental imagery because it's not an outwardly measurable behavior. So uh, J.B. Watson apparently referred to mental imagery as, quote, motor habits in the larynx, <laughs> which I think is a behaviorist way of saying something you only know about because people talk about it. Hmm. Uh, I, I am continually fascinated by thinking about behaviorism because we occasionally hear from people. Uh, we, we've gotten a couple of listener emails over the years, people responding to topics from a behaviorist point of view, essentially not crediting anything that's about the inner experiences or consciousness of people. It's only, you know, that psychology can only be about outwardly measured behaviors. Yeah, it, it's a statement like that, though, that makes me wonder if uh, J.V. Watson was perhaps, uh, had perhaps had aphantasia, you know? I mean, this idea, because we this lines up with what we've heard from a lot of people who claim to have aphantasia, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I heard people talking about picturing something in their mind when they read a book, and I thought they were just being, you know, it was just figurative, you know, they, they weren't saying that they actually saw something in their head. Like, it's, it, it, it seems like it is difficult to imagine the mental image if you have no frame of reference for it, you know? Uh, yeah, except I would say that for Watson, it's not just mental imagery. It's all internal mental phenomena. Mm, I mean, it's okay. everything that's not outward behavior. Uh, so it wouldn't be just – I think he would probably think that mental imagery is not the only thing that's just a motor habit in the larynx that, uh, that I don't know, imagination, that it, like anything inside your head is a motor habit in the larynx. Do you think ether would have changed his mind at all? <laughs> I don't know. Then again, maybe I'm not being fair. I don't want to put words in Watson's mouth. But uh, yeah. So I, I think we don't need to feel uh, bound by the behaviorist view of this thing. And we can entertain the idea of mental imagery. You experience it. Other people say they experience it. You've got no reason to disbelieve them. So I think humans probably have mental imagery. Uh, but, but long in history, it has clearly been assumed that there is some kind of physical representation space and perceiver within the brain for mental imagery. Uh, and one thing I'm thinking about that I came across while preparing for this episode is an illustration by the 16th, 17th century English physician and occultist Robert Flood, spelled F-L-U-D-D, kind of like Elmer Fudd, Fudd with an L. Flood. Oh, also like Randall Flagg. He's got that RF. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's true. Maybe this is one of the incarnations of the man from the desert. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, in one of Robert Flood's tracts, uh, he illustrated the eye of imagination or the oculus imaginationis, which was this third eye inside the brain, which getting it wrong and backwards in multiple ways projected mental images onto some kind of screen or representation space in the back or like in the back of the head or behind the head where mental images would take form after being projected by this third eye. And now, of course, we know that the eye does not project a beam of seeing but receives incoming light. So even 
yeah, I think we're we're confused in more ways than one here. Yeah, like if there really were a tiny viewing screen inside the brain and an eye to see it, it would be too dark to watch the movie. Right, <laughs> right. So that would be a problem. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, like I think third eye views are are popular throughout history. People kind of think there's an observer in the observer. Right, and, and granted, we do have a, a pineal gland, which is essentially an atrophied photoreceptor uh, with some connections to the parietal eye of reptiles, but it, but it produces a, a melatonin, a serotonin-derived hormone, and is not involved in the generation of mental images. Yeah, or at least I don't think there's any evidence that it's no, involved. No, not that I've ever seen. Uh, th- this is funny because I was reading that Descartes believed that the pineal gland was the point of interaction between the body and the immaterial soul. Did you know this? Um, it may, did a, we did an episode on the pineal gland way back in the day, so it's possible okay. that we came across this. Yeah, but I, I'm thinking back to this idea of having, yeah, a viewer inside the viewer, like an internal eye inside the brain for mental imagery. And th- there are reasons I think that the, there are problems with this because if in order to see mental images, we have to project them physically somewhere inside the brain, what is the part of the brain that is looking at the image? Is it another brain with eyes inside the brain? Uh, in cognitive philosophy, this is sometimes called the homunculus theory. That's mm-hmm. a, a you know a name of ridicule for it, like the idea that there has to be somebody inside your brain to see what your brain is seeing or thinking. Right, as with like the homunculus ideas in human reproduction, where there's a tiny little version of you inside of a, a sperm cell. Yes, and like the homunculus idea of of reproduction, it's an infinite regress, right? Mm-hmm. Because if there's a little eyes and a brain inside your head in order to see what you're thinking, then that brain must have little eyes and a brain inside that brain to see what that brain is thinking about. And it goes on forever. Uh, And uh, another version of this extended to total brain function is what Daniel Dennett calls the Cartesian theater. Uh, Again, this is something he's, he's ridiculing. Basically, it's uh, uh, imagining or implicitly assuming that the brain has some sort of little pilot inside who witnesses all of our sense data and controls our reactions. Um, and again, it's basically a reductio ad absurdum because it leads to this infinite regress. Who's seeing the images inside the brain of the homunculus or the pilot or the Cartesian theater must be another smaller one. So I don't think it can be that inside the brain, mental images are seen the same way our eyes see things in the world. Uh, so what actually is happening in the brain when you're asked to imagine a concrete image? Maybe we should take a break and then explore that when we come back. Yes. Everyone think of a bicycle uh, during this commercial break. All right, we're back. And hopefully you still have that bicycle uh, floating around inside your mind. We should give them something more interesting to picture concretely. So yeah, something with details. Yeah. Picture a demogorgon. The demogorgon's good, yeah. Um, it, it is interesting how many like fabled, unreal uh, entities are good uh, things to focus your mind on. And I think it, perhaps it's because there are, there are combinations, there are, um, there are hybrids with different elements. Mm-hmm. So you, 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 in a way, you're kind of thinking of a list and compiling that list into this single mental image. Mm-hmm. And it, it ultimately gives you something to focus on, right? Uh, but the details are provided to you. Uh, whereas the bicycle, you're just saying bicycle. We're not saying, imagine uh, a contraption with two wheels and uh, <laughs> et cetera. Two wheels and nine tentacles and three baboon heads. Yes, yes. And in one hand, the sun, and in the other hand, the moon. 
Okay, now when you do picture the Demogorgon, what is actually happening in your brain? Has modern neuroscience discovered any answers to this question? Uh, actually, the answer is yes. We do know a decent amount. We don't know everything, but we know a decent amount about what happens in the brain when you picture mental imagery. Um, so brain cells in the temporal lobe, and this is – the temporal lobes are at the bottom and sides of the brain sort of around the ears. They become activated and previous research has shown that the temporal lobes are involved in attributing and storing information about the visual characteristics of objects. So normally like when you see something, uh, information might uh, – there might be activity in the temporal lobes that seems to be creating associations with the thing you're looking at. Right, like um, the the foam on the walls in our studio, uh, they look like tiny pyramids. Mm-hmm. So I can look at one of those, and then I can I I can't help but imagine a great pyramid. Yes, and so what's happening there when you're using your eyes is probably that it, lights coming through the eyes, signals are passing from your optic ner- uh, from your uh, retinas to your optic nerve, and uh, they're ending up in the visual processing areas in the back of your head. And that's known as the occipital cortex, the back of the head. And then that starts signals that cascade out to other brain regions where you form those associations probably it has a lot to do with your temporal lobes. But when you're asked to picture something concrete, like I say, picture the Great Pyramids of Giza, uh, we seem to be starting with activity that involves visual memory. So there's stuff going on in the temporal lobes. Uh, And the excitation of these cells then triggers activity in the visual cortices of the occipital lobe. Again, that's the very back of the head. And uh, of course, this is the same part of the brain that receives and begins to process visual information received by the retina transmitted by the optic nerve when you normally see something. And the author of this paper I mentioned earlier, they they point out that when you conjure mental imagery, it's not exactly, but it's sort of roughly an inversion of the process of seeing with the eyes. Basically, it's similar cascades going in opposite directions. And it also, I would say, seems to suggest that if it were possible to project an image from Ted Sirius's head onto film, if anything, he should have been holding the gizmo and the camera on the back of his head rather Mm. than the forehead because it seems like the activity is going from it's sort of beginning with uh, with executive function, of course, that's uh, you know intentionally causing the memories. Then there's memory stuff in the temporal lobes, and then it's going to the occipital lobe in the back of the head. Oh, see, if you'd only known that, it would have worked every time. <laughs> Now, why do you need uh, executive function in the front of the brain as well? Well, apparently that's involved in intentionally trying to call up and hold mental images. Uh, So like conscious management of what's happening in the brain tends to be thought – that's executive function. It's deliberate thinking and maintenance of uh, of attention and that entails activity in the frontal and parietal regions of the brain. So stuff up front and to the front and sides. Uh, And mental imagery may also involve executive function because because it requires the suppression of incoming imagery from the eyes or at least the diversion of visual processing resources from, quote, signals based on light entering the eyes right now to images generated from memory. It's crazy to think about, though, and I'm, I'm thinking about it in this terms because we're also researching an episode that has to do with driving yeah. and the uh, what's going on in your mind when you drive an automobile. And isn't it crazy 
that we can engage in the the cognitively uh, demanding job of say driving a, a speeding automobile down an interstate, mm-hmm. watching what all the cars are doing, and you know reading an occasional uh, sign, looking out for uh, speed traps, all of these things that we're doing, and at the same time we might have uh, an audio book playing mm-hmm. uh, that is filling our head with like a with a you know a rich visual world, and we're we're entertaining both of these at the same time. I would say that that is, while I accept that we can handle those things both at the same time, I would say it is not without costs to to either one. Like I would say that you probably have a more rich experience of the book and mental imagery associated with the book if you were not driving and you'd probably be better at driving if you were not listening to the book (laughs) because there is actually a competition for resources going on. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean – of course, that I think a lot of us tend to to read uh, in environments where there are other distractions, maybe not as cognitively demanding as piloting an automobile, right? Uh, but but still, this would be an interesting one to get some feedback from listeners because I know oh, yeah. that we have a number of listeners who who are on the road a lot and listen listen to us on the road and listen to to other uh, uh, bits of audio as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Please only listen to our podcast if if it is safe to do so. I would say. <laughs> Don't devote too much mental resources to us if uh, if you're piloting a dangerous vehicle. But then again, even if you're not listening to a podcast or an audio book. Uh, oh, yeah. Your mind's wandering. Your mind's going to yeah. wander. And then, I mean, it's not even going to necessarily be a situation where you're consciously choosing things to imagine. You know, you're right. going to be subject to the, 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 the visual summonings of the, the default mode network where, uh, you know, mental images from the, the past or the perceived future are going to, you know, venture into your mind like Victoria. Ghosts. But speaking of ghosts, I mean, I do think it's a little bit spooky that once I read this, this does in fact seem true to me. I just had never really thought of it this way that when you mentally picture something, you're, you are intentionally using your brain. You're performing some kind of internal brain resources management with the executive function, mostly in your frontal lobe, I think, to say, turn down resolution on incoming men, uh, visual imagery mm-hmm. and devote some of those resources to mental imagery. Yeah. And if you if you practice it right now, I think you'll probably notice the same thing. You just like look at something and then try to picture something mentally and you'll notice that your looking kind of gets downgraded in like quality and, and arrest. Are, are you feeling this? Yeah. I mean, but this is also kind of the, um, it, it kind of goes both ways, right? Like both cannot have uh, have complete dominance at the same time. So you might be able to, to dim the thermos that you're staring at by allowing mental images to uh, you know to, to, to be summoned into your mind. But on the same level, if you feel um, haunted by various visual imagery, ghosts, you know, uh, uh, visualizations that are in some way troubling or traumatic, uh, you know, one of the exercises is to focus your awareness on something uh, that that is uh, physically present. Oh, yeah. You know, be it the ambient yeah. environment or a specific uh, object. I think that that would probably absolutely work, at least based on what I've read, that you can that you can greatly lessen the power of mental imagery just by using your senses. Yeah. I mean, like it reminds me of meditation. Meditation practices, like certainly there are closed eye meditation practices, which in that environment you're really opening it up to the the, the visual way of seeing, you mm. know, uh, to, to the mental image alone. But there are uh, plenty of open eye practices where uh, you know the instructor will say, you know, pick something in the room, doesn't matter what it is, it could be an electrical socket, but stare at that electrical socket 
stare long and hard at that electrical socket, and that becomes kind of the uh, you know the visual mantra that will force out the other uh, the other ghosts. Yeah. I, I like this metaphor for thinking about it, that there's this war in your brain, this mm-hmm. war for control of the resources in your brain. And one of them is is things in your immediate surroundings, your sense perceptions. And the other is things conjured by the void, which could be good things, could be bad things, could be useful things, could be debilitating things. I mean, it's just what comes up out, out of, you know, either the intentional use of mental imagery by the executive part of your brain or just, you know, things that are subconscious consciously arising from the depths. And your brain has to have some kind of partitioning system for this this sort of visual processing, right? Uh, it uses regions in the occipital lobe to process image data coming from your eyes, but you also use some of the same regions to process images uh, generated based on your memories or based on your imagination, which I think involves the memories. And these two processes are just constantly going on simultaneously com- and competing for the same neural resources. Yet most of the time, most people... Uh, uh, this is an interesting thing. Most of the time, most people manage not to get confused. Isn't that interesting too? Like yeah. what kind of partitioning must be going on in the brain because you can picture a pineapple on the desk in front of you right now and you can picture that. But most of the time you don't become confused and think you're actually seeing a pineapple there. Yeah, not if awareness is focused. You know, certainly yeah. certainly we all have those those situations where you walk into a room and out of the corner of your eye you think for a second there's a there's a goblin standing in the corner or there's a cat or yeah. or something's out of place. And then, you know, a second glance you realize, oh, it's just a, the the way that the the shadow is following or it's the way that the drape is positioned, etc. Uh-huh. Like we we come back to it again. Like our awareness doesn't just uh, do a single take, it does a double take and it uh, you know, confirms or denies the presence of the thing you thought was there initially. Right. I think the the persistence of the stimulus is yes. one key there that like you can keep looking at something and your, you know, your imagination will fluctuate, but the light coming into your eyes is going to stay about the same. Yeah. Um, and some beautiful lyrics there. That could be an eagle song. <laughs> the persistence. I just tried to sing some eagles, but we don't want to get night cheese, no, so no, we don't. we're not going to leave it in. Uh, now, now it does appear that there is a possibility for some bleed over in the uh, visual processing between mental imagery and actual uh, pro- uh, seeing with the eyes. For example, this thing called the Perky effect. This is named after the American psychologist C.W. Perky. So how does this work? Well, uh, Perky, uh, she, she would have somebody try to visualize something like a leaf or a banana while looking at a blank screen. And then meanwhile, she would project a very faint, soft focus image of something like a leaf or a banana onto the screen at just about the threshold brightness of visual perception. And in these experiments, Perky found that subjects would incorporate visual features of the actual image that was faintly projected, thinking that these were features of their imagined image. For example, the type of leaf or the orientation of the banana. And there have been various attempts to replicate this finding, some successful and some unsuccessful. So I think we're not totally sure how robust this effect is. Uh, but I think now a common assessment of what uh, of this effect is that what's really being detected here is the fact that using visual imagination 
steals processing resources from normal visual perception like we were talking about earlier. So if you're trying to imagine something, you're less likely to notice consciously that an image is being faintly projected in front of you, even though you might pick up some visual cues such as color or shape from that image and just hold them in mind to think they're part of your imagination. Which again is creepy. I mean, this isn't the only finding like this that uh, that you can like give people cues from the outside that people come to believe are just part of their own imagination. Mm. But I guess maybe it's needless to say that after looking through all this, I don't think there's any evidence at all that representation of an image in the mind involves the brain building a physical two-dimensional picture of the image, which could be uh, projected onto an external substrate like film. It's kind of like imagining that you could save a JPEG of Garfield. Let's say you got Garfield and a JPEG, and that's on an old computer floppy disk. And then you could somehow – you're trying to project the image of Garfield physically from the floppy disk onto a photograph or a piece of paper. The 2D pixel layout of Garfield is not found anywhere on the disk. You know, it's broken down and encoded as information, which can later be read by a program to create a copy of the same original image on a computer screen. But the image of Garfield can't be seen anywhere on the disk. You can't pull it out by projecting something through it, even with the strongest microscope. It's encoded as information that only yields the image when decoded cor correctly. And as best I can tell, imagery is... It works a similar way in the brain. It's somehow coded through neuronal activity. It's it's not an image that you could find anywhere in the brain. You've touched uh, on one of my big problems with uh, David Cronenberg's Scanners, <laughs> yeah. which, which is a movie I, I love. Otherwise, uh, there's there's a lot to love about Cronen about about Scanners, and not just uh, you know people's heads exploding mm. um, and Michael Ironside's of uh, you know fabulous uh, you know psychic facial strains, uh, but. but but there is this this one section of the film where the character Cameron Vale can cyberpathically scan a computer hard drive oh, yeah. with his brain, uh, and that always bugged me because I'm like, okay, it's one thing to imagine one brain speaking to another brain, mm -hmm. you know, uh, even though there's you know there's no defined way that that would actually occur, uh, you know, at least in terms of like, like the human mind talking to another human mind, but but it's even in greater stretch than to imagine that he is scanning a computer hard drive. Yeah, because his brain does not – it can't execute the code, mm -hmm. right? Like in order for the data on the hard drive to be read correctly, it has to be executed somehow. There's like a decoding procedure that yields the text or the sound files or whatever it is he's trying to discover. And presumably his brain doesn't have that decoding function within it. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's the same problem with this idea of photography. Yeah, that uh, that somehow you could you could put the mental image in your mind onto the film. That's why I far prefer. Well, one a great example uh, of a far more believable system of uh, telepathic communication would be uh, that used by the Gelflings in the Dark Crystal, and also <laughs> in the the the, the new uh, so far really fabulous. Uh, uh, Netflix uh, f um, uh, prequel series. Oh, I also started it. Haven't finished it. 
Oh, it's yeah. great so yeah, far. I'm loving it so far. But the 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 Gelflings are able to to dream fast, mm-hmm. where they're able to uh, to to like touch, grasp hands, and in doing so, they share their mental images, mental images of you know their memories with each other, uh, so that they can share in an experience. And uh, you know that's a version of mental image sharing that you know I'm not sure exactly what the you know the biological explanation would be for it, but. It's conceivable. It's conceivable that these two, um, you, know, uh, you know, neural systems in the same species could link up to share information, and that would also have a that would have a survival uh, adapt that would be a survival adaptation as well. Like that's something sure. that would be, uh, you know, supported through natural selection. Well, you could think about it as another form of language. I yeah. mean, we, we've got language to code experiences and share them between each other. So you could imagine creatures could I don't know project electromagnetic symbols or something to each other. You know, pulses of stuff that would encode and decode information across brains the same way. I, I don't think there's any good evidence that humans can do that, but you could imagine a species that did do that. Right. Uh, likewise, it's and perhaps there's a, a science fiction, surely there's a science fiction or fantasy treatment of this out there somewhere. You can imagine something with uh, the chromatophores along the lines of a cuttlefish or you know, an octopus mm-hmm. being able to take a mental image in its head and recreate it on its body. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah like, somebody has surely done that before. And that would be, that would be an interesting way to do it. And of course, humans have a similar ability through language and, uh, and, and, and artistic skill. Yeah. We can take a mental image and we can recreate some version of it uh, outside of our body uh, in a way that, that stays stationary. Uh, but it is not, uh, uh, it is not the, you know, the art of, uh, of uh, of uh, telepathy or or, or thoughtography or whatever uh, it is it is the, the the it is the arts themselves it is the it is the use of language I think that's dead on I mean I, we're used to it so it seems less astounding to us but I try to make people remember all the time that language is like magic I mean mm-hmm. language is the most is the most astounding, strangest thing that you can you can use words. You make sounds with your mouth to change what's in somebody else's brain. Yeah, and it works. It works almost all the time. Yeah. Now, quickly before we go to another break, I just wanted to mention I was looking at uh, another paper about recent research in uh, mental imagery, and this is called Mental Imagery, Functional Mechanisms and Clinical Applications. This is in Trends in Cognitive Sciences from 2015 by Joel Pearson, Thomas uh, Nassilaris, Emily Holmes, and Stephen Kosselin. Um, and one of the things that they said in the paper, it, it echoes a lot of the stuff we were talking about already, but um, one thing they say that stuck with me is that the authors conclude that the existing research suggests mental imagery should be considered, quote, a weak form of perception. And that's interesting because you don't normally think about mental imagery as perception. Normally perception is what, you know, your five senses or maybe Mm -hmm. the other senses if you know about the weirder ones. Um, But here they're saying, no, it is like a form of perception. It's almost like a, a lower resolution form of seeing. Now, why is it a weak form of perception? Well, visual regions in the brain show less blood flow and less excitation of neurons during the generation of mental imagery than they do in the actual viewing of images with the eyes, even though you use some of the same regions for both. 
And I also just wanted to mention some interesting questions that the authors bring up as sort of unresolved in this review. Again, this was from 2015, so there may be development since then. But um, one of the things they ask is, we know that there are strong similarities between normal visual perception, seeing with the eyes, and mental imagery. What are the major differences? Uh, Another thing that I was really interested in is they ask the question of, can mental imagery be unconscious? And if you try to understand that for a second, is it possible to picture something without being aware that you're picturing it? Or is mental imagery something that only occurs consciously? Can you only picture something if you're aware that you're picturing it? So, well, what would be what would be an example then based on that logic of someone picturing something without realizing they're picturing something? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's sort of the tough question, like is uh, because it would be difficult to measure that. I think I mean, would it be like an hallucination? Well, no, because you'd be presumably you'd be conscious of an hallucination. Mm -hmm. So the idea would have to be that, you know, you can show unconscious things going on in the brain just by like asking people if they're aware of things, but tracking their behaviors that realize, you know, that show they are aware of this thing or that thing. But it's difficult to say, can people imagine a picture of something without knowing that they're picturing it? Hmm. I would think, you know, I would say the default answer would probably be no, because it's hard to imagine what that would be like. You tend to think, okay, the only times I know that I'm picturing something are when I'm conscious of it. Well, for that matter, is it possible to unconsciously look at something with your visual perception? Like, I think maybe that is possible. Like, if, because if I'm, but I'm looking at something, I am looking at something, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it seems like it follows the same process. Well, I don't know. What about uh, like there could be some stuff along the lines of like the invisible gorillas experiment that uh, indicate that sometimes you can see things without being aware that you're seeing them. Right. Or certainly we've already touched on what happens if you are looking at something in the physical world, but focusing far more intently on something that is just a mental image. Yeah. But uh, hmm. yeah, I mean, I can see why it's an unanswered question, but it is kind (laughs) of it's a tricky question, too. Yeah. Now, I think what does seem pretty clear is that there can be unconscious reasons for the generation of mental imagery. I mean, th- this is a huge thing in, in mental imagery research is like the origins of mental imagery. Mm. For example, intrusive, unwanted mental images. Right. Yeah, I think that's 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 an example that I, I imagine a lot of us can relate to. Uh, but also in, in terms of, say, meditative states, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of encountering an image that isn't uh, at least consciously summoned, you know, not to say that it comes from the outside. It's still coming from sort of the, the internal contents of your your psychic library, but uh, but not in a way that feels um, that you assembled it hands-on. Uh, and then likewise, there's a domain of hallucination and dream. Yeah. I've got another maybe weird question about mental imagery. So, see if this makes any sense. Um, so the authors in these studies find strong links between visual imagery and things like working memory. But I wonder, does the ability to recall visually recognized features of a thing always or even usually rely on mental imagery? And uh, so, for example, if I ask you to picture a character from a movie you've seen, a picture uh, the Chamberlain from The Dark Crystal, mm-hmm. uh, or well, let's see, actually uh, – I think I screwed that up. Okay, no, actually, don't don't picture him yet. Oh, it's too late. I've I've done it like twice. Okay, well, I, I just want you to list physical characteristics of the Chamberlain from the Dark Crystal. Okay, um, bird-like. 
Uh-huh. Um, sneaky, Serpentine, um, uh, Splendid, uh, Decayed. Um, I, I guess I bring this up because my, my question is, when you recall visual characteristics of a thing you've seen, do you recall them exclusively by calling up a mental image of the thing and examining it like mm-hmm. you would a thing you're looking at currently? Or do you have other ways of remembering the visual characteristics of something other than by picturing it and then examining what you're looking at in your mind's eye? Well, with the Chamberlain, I think I'd, I'd draw specifically on just visuals. Mm-hmm. Now, it would be different if I was describe if I was asked to describe a literary character yeah uh, in, in which the, the character is is like initially built out of language yeah um, but the, but the Chamberlain is all is all visual and does not at least in anything I remember describe uh, itself right uh, so uh, you know because there are characters that one encounters visually where the, the character is going to describe itself or there's going to be some voice to describe it but there's no language attached to it so yeah I would say almost purely visual. Yeah, I notice most of the time when I'm trying to recall visual characteristics of something, I picture it first. But yeah, it gets especially complicated when you're thinking about characteristics of something that you've imagined from writing but not from seeing. Yeah, like when you asked me to think of the Chamberlain too, I found myself doing it in two ways. Like basically a mental image of a scene from the film, mm-hmm. like where I'm seeing in my mind not only the character but the backdrop, the lighting, everything. And then there's kind of a, a mental image of, say, the head of the creature as if it were in the room with me. Yeah. You know? So it, that makes me wonder too, yeah, do we have different different sorts of mental imagery, mental imagery that's more based on Thinking maybe in a way it's kind of like thinking about the way we uh, we think about the past and the future, yeah. a way of thinking about the way something was, and then imagining the way something would be, what it would be like if it were here or if I were encountering it in the near future. Hmm. I wonder if that plays into it at all. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Okay, so we've been talking about uh, psychic photography or thoughtography, this alleged ability that some people have to project the contents of their mental imagery onto film or onto objects in the external world. And I think we're probably in agreement that even though a lot of people have uh, claimed to have this power or claimed to have demonstrated this power, this probably is not really going on. In in some ways, the mechanism of it seems incoherent. Right. And that's what it is. Basically, the, the mechanism is incoherent. It's, yeah. it's again, like imagining uh, the, the, the psychics and scanners being able to read hard drives. Like, yeah. like this just doesn't make sense. But there are a number of experiments that – sort of would find a way around this incoherence we're talking about through another layer of encoding and decoding of brain activity that uh, that could be learned through brain-computer interfaces and machine learning. Uh, and in this we're getting, though, into... In, into the, the, the creation of a, of a technological translator. Yes, exactly. It kind of, the same way that you would use language to translate the, the contents of your mind's eye into something in the outside world. Mm-hmm. A computer could potentially translate the brain activity that it reads off of your scalp or in blood flow in your brain through fMRI 
into something in the outside world that could be trained to correlate with your mental imagery. Uh, now, I, I think I, I've got lots of questions about how accurate and how realistic this project actually is. But there are at least these experiments that, uh, that have purported to get part of the way there. And they're, they're kind of freaky. I, I won't lie. I want to say this starts to get me a little bit worried. I want to start with a news piece in Science from January 2018. Uh, the news piece was by Matthew Hudson. And it covers uh, the brain-computer interface work of a group of researchers, including uh, Yukiyasu Kamitani, a neuroscientist at Kyoto University in Japan, and a computer scientist named uh, Zongming Liu at Purdue University in the United States. And this work is focused on it's using brain-computer interfaces to directly read and record mental imagery, which is the imagining of a picture. So you try to imagine, like, why would anybody be doing this? You know, what would be the supposed benefits of a technology to read people's mental imagery? Well, we're asked to imagine in this article maybe being able to search through a collection of digital images simply by mentally picturing the image we want. Okay, that might be a thing. Like, I bet you've tried before to Google an image that you've seen before, but you didn't know what search terms to use and couldn't find it. Yeah, yeah. There, the, I, I could see where that could have an application. Well, granted, it's not something that is really life or death. It right. Would, it would be more like, oh, I vaguely remember a really cool uh, advertisement for a community college on television in the summer in my childhood, and they played a song on it that kind of sounded like Boards of Canada. I wonder if it was actually Boards of Canada. <laughs> like that is a legit thing that I think about from time to time, and there's no way for me to look it up. But true enough, if a machine could look at my mental imagery of that memory of watching that TV spot, then it's conceivable that it could then look into the, some vast database and find that footage for me. Yeah, I'm not saying that we'll necessarily ever get there, but that, that is the kind of thing they're asking you to mm -hmm. imagine. Another one, this is uh, probably more straightforward, drawing without the hands. Straight from imagination to recorded 2D media. That might be interesting. I mean, I wonder if that could open up whole other realms of visual art uh, for people who are not good at drawing with their hands. Right. Or, or for people who are uh, disabled to some degree. Right. You know, I could see that being uh, advantageous as well. Oh, and it can go further than that. I mean, technically, you could imagine something like this allowing people without the power of speech or writing to share their thoughts. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't maybe if you can't speak, you can't describe your visual imagery. Maybe you could share it with something like this. But uh, I want to say, OK, those are the positive versions of what we're imagining. We, we could explore negative versions later on. And so the researchers here have been working on computer algorithms that are trained through machine learning to match patterns of brain activity recorded through things like fMRI with imagery that a subject is looking at. Uh, and because actually looking at an image and then mentally imagining the same image are sort of similar in the brain, they're not exactly the same, but there's some similar stuff going Going on, researchers have experimented with measuring activity in the visual processing areas of the brain with fMRI while a person's looking at different images and then using that data about blood flow in the brain to later guess what a person is looking at without knowing. Now, ideally, what you would have at the end of this kind of research uh, multi-stage process is an algorithm that could read the activity of a person's visual processing center and materialize an image directly on the screen that corresponds to what the person is either looking at or imagining. 
Uh, and uh, again, to whatever extent this technology will ever fully be realized, it's still in the very early stages. Um, but in the example cited in this article, I should say that the image generation portion was not carried out on real brains. The data acquired from human subjects was instead used to train a deep neural network that stood in for an actual brain while they tested their uh, image generating program. And to a quote from Hudson's article here, quote, the system starts with something random, similar to TV static, and slowly refines its painting over the course of 200 rounds. To get closer to the ideal image, the system calculates the difference between the deep neural network activity and the templated deep neural network activity. Those calculations cause it to nudge one pixel this way and another pixel that way until it gets closer to the ideal image. Now, apparently at this stage, the algorithms are not very good at all at guessing what imagery people have in mind when they're imagining realistic photos, but they are pretty good at picking out when people imagine abstract shapes. And that makes sense because I, I think those would be like clearer signals in the brain probably. But yeah, there are some images uh, along with this article that are the paintings gen generated by this algorithm uh, and then they're they're compared with the images that uh, originally gave rise to them, and the, the comparisons are wonderfully creepy. Yeah, they look like like psychedelic entities that have come to uh, convey some sort of uh, uh, occult knowledge uh, unto the listener. Like there's a there's one that's originally a picture of an owl, and then the approximation of it is some kind of like like primordial worm walrus from the center of the earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A, uh, a red mailbox becomes this kind of alien burning uh, crimson pillar. So there are some patterns it seems like they're picking up in, in this version uh, where like some basic shapes emerge, some color patterns seem like detectable. It seems like you can detect when something is basically a face. But uh, I have questions about the ultimate potential of this technology. Like the versions that exist today have limitations such as relying on training and feedback. And also I wonder about the rules for reading mental imagery. Like how transferable are they from one person to another? How idiosyncratic is your brain looking at an image versus somebody else's brain looking at the same image? It makes me think of the, the holophoner from Futurama. Do you remember this uh, instrument? No. It's a musical instrument that Fry uh, attempts to learn at one point. Mm -hmm. And at one point, masters, uh, thanks to the, uh, the uh, parasitic worms living inside his gut that have made him super intelligent. Cool. Uh, but then he loses that ability. But anyway, it's, it's, this, it's basically like a, a small musical instrument, like a woodwind instrument. Uh, but it has the technological capability to uh, take a mental image in your mind and project it into the air for others to see. Okay. But it takes, it's like, it, it's notably, difficult to learn and takes a lot of intense training and concentration to even form a very vague image in the air. And so some of the like the initial images that Fry is able to summon using the holophone are basically as abstract as these examples we've discussed in this study. Uh-huh. Uh, but, I mean, so on one hand, you could say, well, maybe this kind of thing will just never get very accurate in any way that's applicable. That's possible. But also, if this technology ever does get more accurate, 
can you imagine this would – I mean I'm thinking about the way it would be incorporated into machine learning user feedback mechanisms that serve us content on social media. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Um, you know, imagine a Facebook news feed that could not only fine-tune itself based on what you do with your mouse cursor and how you scroll and what you click on and how long you look at things, but based on neurofeedback that allows it to detect how you're using your visual imagination – you know, so they sell you on the good stuff, right? Draw without your hands and, and you get this kind of interface that, that hooks up to your brain. And then it can sense patterns in what users are picturing in their mind's eye in reaction to media stimuli at a massive scale. Even if this can't be used to pull images accurately directly from your brain, just imagine what it could do based on the brain activity correlations across populations alone. Uh, and also I'm imagining if it ever did get good enough at reading brain activity, uh, the brain activity underlying mental imagery and turning that directly into physical images outside the brain, what kind of crazy cyber feedback processes could that lead to? Yeah. I mean, any way you shake it, it's a, it's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, I, I really don't like the idea of, of machines being able to look inside our, our head and do anything with our, our mental images and draw them out. I mean, that's that's just pure uh, dystopia juice right there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, any way you shake it. I mean, it seems like even the positives, I have to like really construct uh, an artificial scenario where it's like, okay, there's been a kidnapping and we have to draw the mental images out of the, the only, so, you know, you get into ridiculous scenarios right. like that, which, okay, yes, given that very particular scenario, perhaps it would make sense. But then you get into con- just basic considerations of, of privacy too. Like, would you ever have the right to look inside someone's head and, and, and draw out their mental images. It depends on who writes the laws and I would think it is the big corporation with all the lawyers that will write the laws. Yeah, and I guess looking at the like the sort of certainly the social media examples too, it's like are you – it depends too. Are you born into a world in which it's normal for your machines to look inside your brain and draw from your mental images, probably with some sort of an agreement uh, in the same way that you know our emails are read by machines, but they're not actually read by people. There would be this idea like, oh, yeah, nobody's actually watching your mental images. It's just uh, our algorithms are keeping track on them so we can better serve you content. I mean, I think – A lot of times we have overestimated our people's desire for privacy Mm -hmm. and – like I, I just think about how years ago if you had told people here's all the things people will be sharing on social media and all the kinds of uh, privileges they will be allowing these companies to have and learning about their lives and learning about their data, people would be like, no way. Nobody will ever surrender that amount of you know privacy and autonomy about their lives and their data. But people just gave it up so willingly. Yeah. And, uh, and so many are still seemingly fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if – I don't know. Maybe it has to do with something about the advertising, the marketing, how these things are, are rolled out to the public that that breaks down our defenses and, and has us ending up being like, ah, yeah, you know, whatever. I'll get the brain device. You know, <laughs> Jeffrey's got one. He likes it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I hold out hope that it would be, a, you know, the bridge too far and that, that humans would uh, – would rise up and reject it. I um, hope so as well. But uh, but I also feel like we're already at that point where humans should rise up and reject uh, what is being presented to them. Uh, you know, certainly by the large social media companies. And um, 
and uh, I don't know, some people are rising up, uh, but we're not quite rising up in the numbers so far to uh, limit their power. Protect your mental imagery. Instead, if you want to have more power in sharing your mental imagery in the cases where you actually do want to share it, hone your powers of translation. That means practice becoming better at language, better at drawing, better at art of whatever kind. Yeah. And indeed, I don't want to end this on a you know too you know pessimistic uh, note, <laughs> a dystopian a note, uh, et cetera. Because ultimately, like what all of this reveals is just like just how incredible uh, our brain's capacity for mental imagery really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know certainly these technologies that attempt to understand it or even replicate it, these uh, uh, pseudo scientific or outright superstitious ideas about what a mental image is and how it might be you know inflicted on the world, they all get they, they're all circle, circling the mystery and the the wonder uh, that we all experience every day. It's yet another case where uh, there's a purported magical ability that is actually maybe less fascinating than the reality that we're just so used to of the fact that we have something like language. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, our two-part look at uh, the mental image and uh, various ideas surrounding it. And I think we we crammed a, a fair number of um, of horror film and and uh, other uh, you know horror related ideas in there. So I think it's it's firmly implanted in our October offerings. But uh, if you're new to the show, uh, we do this every October. Every October is wall-to-wall Halloween-related content. Uh, so if you, want, if you want more, you can go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com and check out past Octobers. Uh, likewise, if you want to check out some of our invention episodes that are October-themed, go check that out as well. That's our other show. It's a journey through human techno-history. And indeed, we are rolling out October episodes as well over there. Uh, so help both shows out. Uh, make sure you have subscribed and rate and review. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.